Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Amen. I just want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads that are here. It's so funny. I, I was just texting Jamin Munoz. Brittany is in the hospital right now getting ready to have, a, have her baby girl. And yeah, so what a cool little Father's Day. He's going to have a baby on Father's Day. We hope and pray. And so uh, that is so awesome. I want to say obviously happy Father's Day to my father. What's up, pops? P1, as we affectionately call him now, P1 is him, P2 is me, P3 is my son, we're all Phillips, and so uh, one, two, three, that's how it goes, but dad, I love you, and I say this all the time, um, uh, I know my heavenly father well because you have demonstrated what it is to be a good father, and so um, I, I just thank the Lord for you, love you so much, integrity, gentleness, all the things that I now pass on to my son directly from you. So I love you so much. And I recognize that not everyone has their father or has a good fatherly relationship. And, uh, and so I just cherish that so much. So I love you, pops. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the men who are fathers in the building and those who are fathering others. We love you guys so much. Come on, one more time for the fathers in the building. Yes. Yes. Uh, I want to make an announcement. We are going to extend our foundation series one more week. So I believe our last Sunday, uh, uh, the last Sunday of July, um, we had originally scheduled for uh, foundations to come to a conclusion, but we're going to extend it one more week. We're actually going to do a theology and coffee during the weekday, a Wednesday night, August 4th. We'll let you know where it's at. We'll give you more details on what that is. Um, as you know, great questions have been coming in. Pastor Roger, as I like to say, he opened the cultural can of worms last week, and it was a beautiful thing. We got all kinds of wonderful questions, and, and uh, questions from slavery to um, uh, men and women roles in ministry, roles at, the ho- at home, submission, authority, headship. What does the scripture say? There are some different types. There are some scriptures that are, that are uh, difficult to... to go through and we've this past summer, we've, uh, we affirmed our first round of elders, which were all men. And so everyone's kind of wondering, where are you at? Considering our cultural time, it's not something. So we want to have a conversation about what the Bible says. We want a dialogue between the different various uh, uh, um, beliefs, the different various theological positions. Uh, this is a secondary item, which means it's not a primary. It doesn't affect our salvation, but it is important. Uh, uh, so men and women, both in ministry, their roles in the home, the roles in the church. What does that look like? And how does that differentiate in the scripture? And what are the different argumentations that are out there? Um, and so we want to extend the foundation series. I think that in itself is really a worthy and important dialogue to have. And so we will, we'll talk about that more, but August 4th on a Wednesday night, we'll do more of a theology and coffee style for that. Cause we want to open it up for questions and really have a, a lot of time to engage there Sunday morning. Kind of there's this, this time frame. So with all that being said, um, I am excited. I hope you were excited for it as well. And I think at the end of the day, I just want to speak to everyone's heart in here. God always has something beautiful to say. So there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to, um, and we'll dialogue through it. Well, if you've been at Inspire for any time, we always present both sides of the coin on secondary issues. And so we're going to talk about that. And then we'll talk about where Inspire has landed and what it looks like for us going forward. Amen. And so um, I, I'm excited to be able to do that. Uh, how are you guys doing? Everybody good? I'm going to need an extra 30 minutes on here today <laughs> uh, because 
because we are going to work through the doctrine of the Trinity. Obviously, we are not going to be able to work through it in its entirety, but I'm going to do my best to present to you this morning something that I believe is faithful to the scriptures and something I believe that will bless you. Uh, and before we do that, I just want to go through, we asked questions a couple of weeks ago regarding different theological truths. And we asked these questions specifically to those that, uh, that are following us on Instagram, people from Inspired Church and those that are following us. And I just wanted to kind of give you guys an idea, a little idea of just how uh, we answered when it came to the particular subject of the Trinity. Are y'all, are y'all good? You ready? I meant to say you ready. Good. Um, so this is a true or false statement. And so we kind of put this out there on Instagram and we said, made this statement, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three different names for one person of God as he displays his work in three different roles. I want to say that again because I know somebody was, the language was very meticulous on this, right? Uh, so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three different names for the one person of God as he displays his work in three different roles. You know, and you don't have to yell true or false in here, but out of those that were pulled, uh, 64% said that statement is true, whereas 37% said that that statement was false. Another question that we ask is, God is three beings. God is three beings, true or false? 32% said true, 68% said false. Finally, another question that we asked on Instagram was this. In their nature, the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. 83% said true, 17% false. I feel like on that last one, everyone felt good about that last one. Or the first two, you're probably wading through the language. Uh, Nonetheless, I want to tell you that language is important because language really differentiates who we are as Trinitarian and others that are not. And so hopefully I'll be able to go through that. If you're a note taker, this is a great time to take notes. Um, and if you're not, you may want to try or even go back now. We have a podcast and we also, we also re-show we on YouTube. You can go and find our YouTube Inspired Churches. And those that are online watching, they can already, they can press pause if they want to and come back. And so with that being said, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. If you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Amen. And here's what I want this scripture to do. This scripture really communicates my heart and my prayer for all of us today as we process through this complex doctrine of the Trinity. So this is my heart and this is my prayer for all of us as we walk through this morning the complex doctrine of the Trinity. And so for all of you that are watching and listening, this is my heart for you. As we walk through the complex doctrine of the Trinity, this is my prayer for you. And so um, let's get into the text and then get into this discussion. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 19 reads like this. The apostle Paul writes, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father. Make note of that. From whom every family in heaven on earth is named. 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened, you ready? With the power of his spirit in your inner being. And here it is. So that what? Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Y'all see that? Father, spirit, Christ. Now here's my prayer. That you, that's all of us, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength, are you ready, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that what? Surpasses knowledge. Notice, Paul says, I want you to know the love of Christ that actually surpasses knowledge. That's really fascinating. And finally, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Amen? Come on, somebody say fullness. Amen. Let's say that again. Fullness. Everybody, thank you so much for participating. That you may be filled. So two things. That you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Hmm. And that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, Paul doesn't say part of the fullness. Amen. He doesn't say uh, uh, that, that you may have a, uh, maybe some or a little bit of God, but his desire is for all of us to be grounded and rooted in the surpassing knowledge of Christ's love, to know that, and to also be filled with the fullness of God as revealed in this text, Father, Son, and Spirit. So there are Two questions that I want to ask today and so that you know where we're going on our journey. Number one, what is the fullness of God? What is the fullness of God? And number two, how is the fullness of God demonstrated by the gospel? How does that love of God, the knowledge of Christ's love in the gospel, how does it demonstrate, display, or reflect the fullness of God? Are you with me? So what is the fullness of God? Before we get there, let's pray. <laughs> Jesus, Heavenly Father, it is in your Son, Jesus' name, that we pray, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, that we ask that you would do what is impossible for me to do, communicate this mystery to the hearts and minds in this room so that they're both theologically sound and also it's transformative that we would walk out of here in worship and that we'd walk out here in submission to the Lordship of Christ and that we'd walk out here admiring the beauty of the gospel. All of that is too much for me to do. And so I pray that you would do that through the words that you've given us in your scriptures and through the words that you've given me. And we ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. How y'all doing? I'm going to ask that. I'm going to ask that throughout. I want you guys to know that we will be taking your questions. And so if you have questions at any point in time on each slide, we do have a number for you and you can just, we've had a lot of great questions. Pastor Roger had like a million questions. Poor guy was sweating bullets last week. You did such an amazing job. You got one minute <laughs> on Instagram to try to capture it all, which is impossible. You did such a great job. And also know that we are following up with people individually if they have longer questions. I did say you're, you're, when you turn in, your question is anonymous. What I meant to say, something like, well, you lied to me. What I meant to communicate to you, what I should have communicated to you is my 
fault that the staff, the three of us can see who turns in the question. Everyone else count. And so anonymous in terms of the crowd, but we definitely are able to see that. I want to make sure I corrected that because um, I know I said anonymous the last two weeks. So forgive me. Uh, uh, that was not on purpose. Um, but I want to make sure I make that differentiation. So throughout today, you are welcome to be on your phones. Amen. Um, if you are sending a text <laughs> and not to your homie, but uh, to inspire churches. Uh, <laughs> so what is the fullness of God? That's the first question. Now, this is a long question and I'm not going to get to it all, but the simple answer is the Trinity. <laughs> what is the fullness of God? Well, the simple answer is the Trinity. Uh, it's within this spectacular doctrine that we see the fullness of God. It's within this spectacular doctrine that we know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And it's within this spectacular doctrine that we find our sense of culminating worship. When God's fullness is revealed to us, we can't help but bow our knees in reverence, lift our hands and cry, holy, 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 three times holy. The angels are in his presence declaring holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so the fullness of God, you may say, well, I don't need to know about the Trinity. No, that is the fullness that Paul wants us to be filled with. And it will enhance your worship. Amen. Amen. But this Trinity is a mystery. It's a mystery. What's a mystery? Biblically, theologically, Paul uses the word mystery. Mysterion in the Greek. What does that mean? Mystery, whenever it's used in the New Testament, refers to a truth that was hidden or concealed in the Old Testament, but revealed in the New. And so in the Old Testament, there was a hidden truth that you couldn't see, but in the New Testament, that truth that was hidden was now revealed. Paul says in Colossians chapter one, he calls Christ in us, the hope of glory, a mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. In Ephesians three, Paul describes the inclusion of the Gentiles to the promises of God through the gospel. He calls it a mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. Y'all see that? How about in Ephesians five? Paul calls the institution of marriage. You know, when a man leaves a, his mother and father and a woman leaves his mother and father and the two become one, he says in Ephesians 5, he says, this is a profound mystery that refers to Christ and the church. That means that ever since the beginning, when that first man, Adam, and that first woman, Eve, came together to become one, they were already foreshadowing the church and Christ. And even though the church and Christ had not incarnated yet, and even though the church had not been built as of yet, right there in Genesis, we see the mystery that will later be revealed through Revelation. You see that? I love how theologian and Princeton professor B.B. Warfield illustrates. They have the coolest names. No theologians, they have the coolest names. B.B. Warfield. He illustrates it like this. He says this. The Old Testament is like a richly furnished room, but dimly lit. 
You see that? It's like a richly furnished room, all kinds of furniture, but dimly lit. And so just because the furniture is in the dark and you can't see it doesn't mean that it's not there. Now you may stub your toe and cuss and have to repent, but just because the lights are off doesn't mean that the furniture is not there. And so when someone comes around to flick on the lights and the room is illuminated, what do you, you begin to see what you had never seen before that what had already always been there. And I want to say this as we continue to kind of like a funnel here. I want to say one more thing. I think that's super important as we prepare to process this mystery of the Trinity. I want you to keep this in mind. Are you ready? Although God has called us to fully know him, we cannot fully grasp him. Let's let that sit for a minute. Although he's called us to fully know him, we can't fully grasp him. And so we can know him, but to pick him apart and fully comprehend with our finite mind, the inner workings of God would, if we could, would actually render him nothing but a creature. He wouldn't be God. And so we are called to fully know him, but we cannot fully grasp him. And so if you, fi- if you feel a tension while we're talking about the Trinity, it's okay. That's a good tension to live in. We're not going to fully solve it, especially in one sitting. Are you with me? So what does Trinity mean? What, where did Trinity come from? And what does the doctrine of the Trinity do? Okay, so we're going to start off there. Really, really just quickly here. What does the Trinity mean? Where did Trinity come from? And what does the doctrine of the Trinity do? What does it mean? Simply put, three in one. Try, right? Try, three. And unity, one. All right, we're done. Let's pray. (laughs) Three in one. Trinity, try, unity. Now, where did Trinity come from? Not in your Bible. That poses a problem for a lot of folks. So where did it come from, Pastor Phil? What are you talking about? Well, I'll explain. It came from where it was coined. It's a Latin word that was coined by a theologian named Tertullian, or I like to call tortilla. (laughs) That's my dad joke for today. So the word Trinity does not come out of the Bible. It's a Latin word, Trinitas, which just means threeness, right? Threeness. Now, listen, although the word doesn't come out of the Bible, the concept is all over scripture. Are you with me? And fourth century theologian says this. He actually put it like this. Uh, uh, um, He says, it's Gregory. uh, I got to make sure I say his name, right? Gregory of Nazianzus. I'm believing that's what his name is called, but somewhere around there. I'd love to give you that name later on if you so want. He says this, if a passage in the scriptures were to say five plus three, and that's it, we know that the passage would be saying eight. Are you with me? If a passage were to be saying five plus three, we know that that passage would be saying eight. Eight is not explicitly written in the text, but the concept of eight is five plus three. You with me? So when Jesus commands his followers to baptize in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the scripture may not say 
Trinity or threeness, but the Trinity, there is three. Are you with me? Yeah. Amen. So far, so good, Mom and Patty. I appreciate it. Thanks for talking back to me. So what does the Trinity mean? Three and one. Where did the Trinity come from? It's a Latin word, which means threeness. And this third point that I want to make is, what does the doctrine of the Trinity do? And the word here is safeguard. The doctrine of the Trinity safeguards the mystery from heresy. You with me? The doctrine of the Trinity safeguards the mystery uh, from heresy. What do I mean by that? There are different heretical ideas about how God has revealed himself. And so the Trinity keeps us grounded in the truth or this doctrine so that we aren't moved into things that are untrue about God. For example, something that is called modalism. Modalism. What is modalism? Modalism is of the belief that there's one God playing three different roles, almost like he's wearing three different masks. And so you have one God who plays the role of the Father, plays the role of the Son, and plays the role of the Spirit. Are you guys with me? And so that is something called modalism. We see a lot of oneness Pentecostals and apostolic Pentecostals. Some of y'all might be friends. I want you to realize that they do not believe in the Trinity. Modalism. Again, if you can ask questions on these later, you can. I'm going to breeze through these. Next is tritheism. Tritheism. Really, this is just polytheism. This is separate gods, multiple, separate, three separate individual gods. Are you with me? So there's like a polytheistic religion. Mormonism can fit here. Even though they, the Mormons have tried to move away from being called Latter-day Saints, they want to focus on Christ and Jesus. They want to move away from the, even the word Mormonism and focus on Jesus, but they believe in many gods. Okay, this is a tritheistic, well, beyond tritheistic for them. And then there's also something called subordination, which believes in lesser God, that Jesus was like a lesser God. God the Father is the primary God, the uh, God with all of the attributes. Like Jesus somehow is this kind of lesser God that was, came from the Father, that the Father either created or brought into existence. Are you with me? And so Jesus is subordination, okay? So you have modalism. This is one God playing three different roles. You have tritheism, which is multiple gods. And then you have subordination, which is lesser gods, and uh, a good example of somebody who would be in this camp would be people like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, in some ways, heresy can be a gift to the church. Did you know that? <laughs> Let me explain why. They force the church to be clear about what they believe. And they forced the church to uh, uh, articulate what the scripture teaches so that people like us can be able to differentiate the truth from scripture, the truth of scripture from the distortions and lies of heresy. And so even though we don't like heresy, heresy has been a hidden blessing to the church because it has caused the church to wrestle with the language and to be able to accurately formally explain the doctrines so that we do not fall into the trap of heresy. So, historic 
Orthodox Christianity confesses, are you ready, that God is, this is important, because many of us got it wrong on Instagram. You ready? Are you ready? 9 a.m., we waking up, you ready? I know, I don't want to be that guy, but I was just like, give me a little love here. Here it is. God is one being and three persons. God is one being and three persons. He's not three being, he's not one person. God is one being and three persons. Let's break that down a little bit. Nobody will argue that the scriptures say that God is one. Nobody will argue that. That's a collective truth. If you read the Bible, God is one, is everywhere in scripture. In fact, at the heart of the Jewish uh, faith is the Shema in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through five, that declares, are you ready? Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Y'all remember that? Even Jesus quotes this. So we don't, we don't just see the idea of God being one in the Old Testament, but Jesus affirms this when he confesses this same quote from Deuteronomy to those that are asking him. The scribes are asking, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. God is one. Mark chapter 12, 29 through 30. Are you with me? And so from Genesis to Revelation, there is no doubt that the Bible affirms monotheism, one God. Yet we see throughout the New Testament, are you ready? A clear distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What do you mean? Well, at Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks, this is my Son. The Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And of course, it's the Son himself who is being baptized. And we see this manifestation in three different ways. The one God in three persons. Are you with me? Even at your own baptism, you were baptized in the name singular of three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Fascinating. You you step into the church and declare your salvation through the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And throughout the New Testament, not only are these three persons separate, but what else? We see that the Trinity, all, all of them are individually recognized as God. I don't have time to give you all the passages. But in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, we see Jesus praying to the Father, right? He says, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In John 20, 28, after encountering the resurrected Christ, Thomas, who was doubting, amen, he falls and he confesses to Jesus, my Lord and my God. In Acts chapter 5, verse 4, after confronting Ananias for lying to the Holy Spirit, Peter says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Therefore, if there is only one God and that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons and all God, then the only explanation that makes sense of all the biblical data is the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. So we confess that God is one. Amen? But what we mean by that, you ready? I'm going to break that down. What we mean by God being one is that the three persons, are you ready, are one in essence, one essence, being. 
Now within the being, there are three persons, but the three persons are one in essence. Essence is the essential stuff of God, right? In this one essence or one being, the three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. Each person of the Trinity shares the same attributes and, the, and, and they share the same divine nature. There are no essential differences inside the one being between the three persons. They are all God, not gods, God. One being, three persons. Now, Inside of the one being, inside of the, this one essence, are three distinguishable persons. And that distinguishment is revealed to us through their personal proper names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three possess a first-person awareness, self-awareness. Did you know that? All three in one being possess a first person self-awareness and they're not interchangeable, which means the father is not the son and he knows it. <laughs> the son is not the spirit and he knows it and the spirit is not the father and he knows it. And so in the being are three persons who all have a self-awareness, a first person self-awareness. Are you with me? And those names give us insight to roles that they play. So there is divert unity and diversity. Isn't that a powerful conversation? And so there's a unity in essence, but a diversity in identity. And that identity also suggests role. What do I mean by that? You ready? The father appoints. The son accomplishes and the spirit applies. Let me break that down. The father appoints as father and first person of the Trinity. He initiates all divine. He initiates all divine action. Are you ready? The son accomplishes as son and the second person of the Trinity. He acts from the father and the spirit applies. I love this. As the spirit, the third person of the Trinity, he brings all things to completion. And so we have in this one being, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each of them distinct in identity. And through that, the role Father appoints, Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies, but they all have the same will. Same, same will. Amen? In fact, redemptive history tells us this story the father initiates the son incarnates and the holy spirit inspires amen amen now here's this is really critical here our language is limited <laughs> right uh, even our understanding of personhood is not so we have to be very careful not to take personhood too far notice i said three persons not three people is that helpful? One being three persons, not one being three people. One being three persons who all have a self-awareness, first person self-awareness, acting together, co-equal, co-eternal. Theologian R.C. Sproul said, the Trinity is unusual and mysterious, but it's not irrational or contradictory. 
You see, if we said God was one being and three beings, that would be irrational and contradictory. If we said God was one person and three persons, that would be contradictory, contradictory and irrational. But it is logical to say that God is one being and within the one being, the essence is three persons. That is not contradictory. That is not irrational. It is unusual and mysterious. But guess what? God's not from where we're from. So, what is the fullness of God? The fullness of God is the Father, Son, the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and the one being of God. And Paul says, I want you to be filled with the fullness of God. Now watch, prior to today, he says, I want you to know the surpassing knowledge of Christ's love. Hmm. So this is my next question. How is the fullness of God, the Trinity, demonstrated by the glorious gospel? How does the, how does the gospel reveal the Trinity? How does the gospel display and demonstrate the Trinity? Are you ready? I love this. Did you know that your salvation is Trinitarian? Your salvation is Trinitarian. Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14. You can go home and read it if you're a good Christian. If you're not, I'm sorry, but go home, take note, read this week, Ephesians chapter one, three through 14. It's a beautiful chapter displaying beautiful things. But in that chapter, are you ready? God, the father has redeemed us through the blood of his beloved son. And it's in Christ, the son, that the father gives us every spirit blessing and these blessings are sealed and guaranteed by the spirit I gotta say this again I want you to know that the, your salvation is Trinitarian in nature what do I mean by that God the father has redeemed us through the blood of his beloved son and in Christ the son God has given to us all spiritual blessings and the Holy Spirit is both guaranteed and sealed us that inheritance God initiates, the Son acts, and the Holy Spirit completes. God gives us salvation, and then he gives us an understanding of it. So that what we have in the good news is a revelation of who God is in his fullness. Isn't that fascinating? What we have in the gospel is a revelation of God in his fullness. We would not know the fullness of God if it wasn't for the gospel. So what do I mean by that? In the Old Testament, God has always been Trinity. In the New Testament, we only understand that when Christ comes and the Spirit falls. And then we see a revelation. Are you with me? You see, wherever we encounter the doctrine of salvation, we also encounter the integrated work of the Father Son and the Holy Spirit. You don't believe me? Look at the text. All who have placed their faith in Jesus have been drawn by the Father. John 6, 44. And moved by the Spirit to confess Jesus as Lord. No one can confess Christ as Lord unless moved by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. So what does this mean? Two things, two things. 
the triune nature of God was not made clear until the arrival of the Son and the arrival of the Spirit enacting the plan of salvation. To simply put, we know God's fullness because the gospel reveals the Trinity. The plan, the redemptive plan of history and that redemption plan enacted through the coming of the Son, the falling Holy Spirit, reveals what was hidden before. So, are you ready for this? this is, if you didn't hear anything else I said today, please hear this. So if we reject the doctrine of the Trinity, we reject the fullness of God and the intricate working of salvation. Hmm. Wow. This is why the doctrine of the Trinity is not a secondary issue. This is a primary. This is who God is. This is as primary as it is for you to know your husband and wife if you're married. The Trinity is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. And if you want to know God, <laughs> right? if you want to know God, there's no part or little bit. You have to know, be filled with the fullness of God. Amen? Amen. Listen, if your God is not triune, your God cannot save you because your God is not, your God is not love. If your God is not triune, your God cannot save you because God can't be love. I'm going to invite the team to come up so we can get ready. I want you to, I want to unpack that statement because it can sound a little unfair if you're not Trinitarian. If your God is not triune, your God cannot say because your God is not love. Richard of St. Vincent said this, the father is loving the son and the son is loving the spirit and the spirit, the father eternally. Isn't that beautiful? Y'all with me? I know team's coming up. Stay with me for a little bit. I love this. The father is loving the son. The Son is loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Father, and they've been loving each other for eternity. Are you with me? What does this mean? If your God is absolutely one, then your God is not a God of love. How could this be? He's been existing in solitude from eternity past. How could he? It's not a self-love, but it's a love of others. If God is absolutely one and that's your God, then he's been in solitude for eternity past. He cannot be a God of love. There was a time when he did not love, so God is not love. In fact, the only way he could love is if he created in order to express it, which would make him dependent on creation to be loving. So that would mean that if God is love, God would be also, if God is love, that means God is also eternal. That means he'd have to depend on something outside of himself. That's contradictory. God is not dependent on anyone outside of himself. He would be dependent on creation. That would have to mean creation had to be eternal as well, which would mean creation is God as well, which would be polytheistic in nature. Are you with me? How could he be loved? He's been by himself since eternity past. This wouldn't make him God at all. His attributes would be fully dependent upon something outside of himself. But if your God is triune, if your God is triune, there has eternally been an outgoing of love in the intra-Trinitarian life of God for eternity.
watch. As a result, God would not be dependent upon creation to love. The three persons would have been loving one another for all eternity. You know what the implications of that would mean? That means that they never had to create. Y'all get that? They didn't have to create to love because they've been loving for eternity inside of the essence. They've been, the persons have been loving each other for eternity. There was no, so you know what that tells us? Creation is an overflowing of their love. God didn't create because he needed you. He created so that you could enjoy the love that he's always had. He does not depend on us. We depend on him. What beauty and majesty and glory of the triune God to know that our creator didn't create us because he was alone. He was tired. He was in solitude. He needed someone to hang out with. He created us as an outflow of his love. I told this analogy a while ago. I was walking around the park and I saw some guys making some barbecue and I went and made a couple of rounds. It was smelled really good. It smelled really good. It looked really amazing. And this is, they, as I walked around the park, they said, hey, come over here, check this out. We made some ribs. And I came over and I started to eat the ribs. Didn't know the guys at all. It was amazing. Can I tell you this? Those guys loved their food, whether I came into it or not. They was, they, whether I was there or not, they were enjoying their food. And so they invited me into their joy. Are you with me? God didn't have to create us, but he did to bring us into the joy and the love that had always been. Now that's what a triune God does. The doctrine of the Trinity highlights the superiority of the one triune God. And the doctrine of the Trinity I love this, justifies Isaiah's declaration in Isaiah 40, 18, when he says, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare him with? In other words, y'all got no analogies to compare. And you better stop at a certain point because every analogy falls short. You'll run into being a heretic if you try too hard. You heard of the egg and the water analogy, none of that works. I love that, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness can you compare him with? You can't, there's nothing you could compare this God to. There are no words to describe him. No analogies will suffice. Though this God invites us to fully know him, we cannot fully grasp or explain him. Aren't you glad that we don't serve a God who is essentially alone and lonely? Aren't you glad that we don't serve a God who is essentially cold and distant and loveless? The only God of whom you can say with certainty God is love is the triune God of the Christian faith. Every other God will make you earn it, make you work for it, and at the end cross your fingers and hope that you did enough, but you won't know until you stand before him. Let me say that again. Every other God will make you earn it, work it, and cross your fingers and hope that you make it. But God, our God, has revealed to us by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, he is eternally good, he's eternally gracious, he's eternally faithful, he's eternally lovely, and he's eternally trinity, because why? God is love. Love is who he is. Now as we prepare this morning, our hearts in this small room, big room, as we prepare our hearts to respond and worship to God's superior glory, if this doesn't get you to worship, you know what? I can't do it. 
You'll have to look at the gospel again because there must be something in your life where you're just not there. Maybe this 16 months of not coming to church has really messed you up and you need to take a look at his glory again so that this would be your supreme worship. As we prepare our hearts to respond in worship to our God's superior glory, let us remember the words of theologian and pastor Fred Sanders. He says this, since the doctrine of the Trinity is a large response to how God has revealed himself, whenever we confess God is Father, Son, and Spirit, we're engaging in worship in an act of praise. The Trinity in itself, the doctrine of the Trinity is worship. It's a response. That's what worship is. It's a response to the fullness, the greatness, the glory of God. And so whenever you confess in your baptism, whenever you confess God is the Father, Son, and Spirit, you are moving in an act of worship to a triune God that you can fully know but never fully grasp. So come, let us praise the triune God together. Beautifully diverse, yet lovingly unified. Wow. Let us worship. Let us praise the triune God together. Beautifully diverse, lovingly unified as his body and his bride. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspired Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspired Churches through Instagram at Inspired Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Churches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.